1966, before an audience of third world revolutionaries, Fidel Castro reiterated his most unwavering commitment. Así entendemos los revolucionarios cubanos nuestro deber internacionalista. It's a great, it's a remarkable time in human history, as perhaps all times are. And it's a remarkable time to actually look at the progress of the Cuban Revolution in the, in the uh, time since 1959, but particularly since in the time since the collapse of uh, the old socialist bloc in Europe. So today I'm delighted to say I'm joined by um, Bernard Regan, who's a, a representative of the Cuban Solidarity Campaign. And for the episode today, we're going to be discussing the current news with regard to Cuba, but also the look at going back and looking at the history and looking at the real achievements of what's been built uh, by the Cuban Revolution in the, in the years that have gone by since 1959. So, Bernard, would you like to introduce yourself and um, just talk about uh, your work and um, Cuban solidarity and um, how, that's, uh, how, the, how you came to be involved in it? Uh, well, my name is Bernard Regan. Uh, I'm the secretary of the Cuba Solidarity Campaign, uh, which is an organization in uh, Britain with uh, members, uh, individual members uh, and affiliated organizations. Uh, we have in membership, uh, in terms of affiliation, something like 24 or 25, I can't remember the exact count now, uh, of the national trade unions affiliated to the TUC, representing more than 95% of organised trade unionists in Britain. And of course, we campaign actively uh, in opposition to the blockade of Cuba uh, and calling for respect for the right of Cuba to determine its own economic and social and political path. And in that respect, we uh, try to put as much pressure as we can on the British government to respect Cuba's independence uh, and thereby to be. Uh, opposed to the actions of the United States of America in pursuing their blockade, uh, their inhuman and illegal blockade. And of course, in addition to that, when we talk about the independence of Cuba and the rights of the Cuban people, we're talking also about the uh, right for Cuban to have control of its whole island uh, and thereby the withdrawal of United States forces from Guantanamo Bay. So that's the backdrop of, of the campaign. We um, uh, have a magazine which we produce uh, regularly that contains information on the latest developments in Cuba and uh, updates about events that are happening. Uh, we also hold meetings regularly. We bring people over from Cuba uh, who come and explain the work that they're engaged in. Um, and we also uh, organize delegations who go to Cuba to visit the island and to see the reality of what's happening there, uh, which obviously gets an opportunity for people to um, challenge and question the kind of uh, mainstream media in this country, which has a, in the main, a very jaundiced attitude towards Cuba. So uh, it's a variety of work locally, uh, nationally and uh, in Parliament as well, uh, trying to promote essentially that Cuba has its right to self-determination and its right to act uh, and, res and respect for its its own sovereignty. Thanks, Bernard. And it, indeed, it's a remarkable thing when you think about it, how much 
the British government likes to talk about uh, the the rights of nations to self-determination when that nation is uh, favoured by the British government or the government uh, concerned is favoured by Britain and the United States. But the right to self-determination is never applied to nations like Cuba, Venezuela and other nations who are officially on the enemies list. In fact, those principles seem to go right out the window. Just as a follow-up to what you're saying there about the your the campaign's work in Parliament, what is has there been any progress recently on how um, on the British government's attitude towards uh, relations with Cuba? Uh, my my imagination would say that under Boris Johnson, that's probably a no. But what what's the latest with regard to that? Um, I mean, obviously, uh, the position of the British government is in part, I think, going to be affected by uh, Brexit to the extent that um, the European Union has actually actively engaged with Cuba in a much more positive way in the last two years, two or three years, signing a new uh, document of um, agreement in terms of uh, discussion and opening up trade and things like that. Uh, and that's that's of interest because that is a change from their previous position, which was much more uh, to follow in a fairly um, slavish way, the stance taken by the United States uh, in respect of Cuba. Um, one of the things of interest is, however, that there are contradictions opening up. I mean, just recently, within the last 12 months, we've seen the visit by the British members of the British royal family to Cuba with Prince Charles and mm. uh, Camilla going. And um, in normal circumstances, as people know, uh, often these visits by the uh, members of the heads of state, uh, members of, uh, of the royal family, are a prelude to trade negotiations opening up. I mean, this is, if you know, if you look at what's happened in Saudi Arabia and uh, uh, countries in the Middle East and, and in, indeed in the Far East, often these things have been used as a kind of um, a propaganda exercise, but have often been a prelude to kind of changes in economic relations. We've no evidence of that being on the cards, but uh, certainly it suggests a, a more uh, a less slavish attitude towards um, the United States' policies on Cuba than hitherto. The other interesting thing is, of course, that during this COVID-19, um, there was a British cruise ship called the Braemar, which was um, more or less stranded in Caribbean waters because none of the ports in that area, including ports in the United States, would allow it to dock in order that its passengers could be flown back to Britain. And Cuba took the step of uh, actually allowing the vessel to uh, to dock in, in um, the port of Mariel, which is just close to Havana, and for its passengers to disembark and for all of those passengers then to be flown back swiftly to Britain uh, in case of they needed treatment. And um, the British Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, uh, in Parliament acknowledged this act of humanity by the Cubans and paid tribute to them. So, uh, the, you know, I think the, the pure humanitarian gestures of Cuba, reflecting, of course, its own politics and its own way of treating people in its own country, as well as the way it relates to people abroad, I think uh, undoubtedly kind of cut across that uh, antipathy, if you like, that normally you see when, when British politicians are talking about Cuba. But there's nothing as yet that's gone beyond that. Um, but nevertheless, I think those are significant things. And inside Parliament, there's been uh, a, a, an early day motion, which is a way of 
expressing opinion, uh, signed by more than 50 members of parliament, calling on the British government to call on the United States government administration to uh, withdraw the blockade and to uh, allow Cuba to trade freely internationally and, and also, of course, for uh, the United States uh, to trade with Cuba itself. Oh, thanks for that, Bernard. It's some interesting developments, particularly at the moment. And one of the things that we find in the uh, the contradictions between the uh, European, the powerful European states and the United States government in recent years has been that the Trump regime is so crude and over the top and just a sort of expression of all that is most reactionary in the United States ruling class that it's actually opening up more and more contradictions between the different capitalist governments uh, that could prove useful to a government or governments like uh, Cuba and also Venezuela in actually managing to get themselves, but at, least, at the very least, some some slack in terms of trade relations with uh, Britain and Europe. Um, with given that the the political atmosphere in the United States has reached. A level of um, fever pitch, red scare type um, a, a type activity that's not been seen for many years, with both Biden and Trump each accusing the other now of being soft on communism, uh, as if we were back in around about 1955. Um, but uh, I'd like to move into uh, just a, a discussion ab uh, about the Cuban government's response to the coronavirus. As I said in the introduction, uh, we everyone who's been paying attention will have seen the Cuban medics on international solidarity work in hard-hit capitalist countries like Italy, um, where they went and wor worked alongside Italian and, of course, Chinese doctors in uh, battling the disease. Um, so, can you just can you give us an outline of what the Cuban government's been doing to battle the virus internally, and also? Um, at what the um, what their efforts have been in terms of international solidarity through the dispatch of uh, Cuban doctors to different areas of the world? Well, certainly domestically, they've been carrying out a fantastic program, uh, as you, those of you who are familiar with Cuba would anticipate. Um, first of all, in terms of figures, uh, there are around about, uh, or there have been around about 5,000 cases um, identified of, of COVID-19. Uh, some of those are being treated in hospital uh, and others are being treated uh, at home through primary healthcare system where there are local doctors um, uh, in neighbourhoods and, and those neighbourhoods themselves are uh, surveyed in terms of kind of the incidence of, of illness and disease and things of that kind. Uh, and they're rolling out a program of tracking and tracing uh, and testing in a very detailed way. They've got uh, medical students, for example, a friend of mine who works at one of the Cuban uh, schools of medicine in Havana um, is working with a group of his students and they're going literally house to house to check how people are, how their well-being is, if there are any significant changes in their health uh, and to ensure as well that they are have adequate food supplies and, and that they are being looked after by, by the neighbourhood. And uh, that programme is also going to kind of roll out, uh, well, is rolling out nationally. Uh, but in addition to that, they're going to roll out a programme of testing uh, and they have a very detailed way of 
ensuring that they track and trace all cases. I mean, if you look on the, and you can look on the websites, all of this information is available. At the moment, there have been 79 fatalities. Um, they've actually had five days in the recent, uh, up to today, of no single fatality at all. And there are about 11 million people in Cuba. So very crudely speaking, if you multiply these figures by six, you can make a comparison with Britain in terms of um, the numbers of fatalities. And so that would be uh, somewhere around about, very crudely, around about 500 fatalities uh, is the comparison between Cuba and Britain. And everybody knows we're now running at something like 40,000 cases, if you take mm. those that are those that are recorded as COVID and those actually that are uh, COVID-related uh, in terms of deaths in care homes and things of that kind. So there's an incredible gulf between what is happening uh, to people in this period of the pandemic in Cuba in comparison to Britain. Um, as far as schools are concerned, schools are closed and they won't reopen until at the earliest in September. But there is a program, an educational program being run through the medium of the television uh, to compensate for children not being able to get to school. Um, Non-essential work is is people are uh, at home, not uh, not working um, in areas of work that are not considered to be um, critical. Uh, so, uh, in where people can do, they're working online. They're using uh, computers and so on. When people go outdoors, they're wearing face masks. Uh, and when there are outbreaks of of COVID nineteen. Uh, those cases, as I said, are being tracked and traced. And if there is a cluster of uh, of incidents of the of the disease, break, disease breaking out, then those communities are temporarily isolated whilst uh, you know the quarantine period is 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 carried out. So you know there's a very uh, detailed program. Now, in addition to that, um, it's normally the case that children going to school would receive meals, and and workers would get meals in canteens. And they are carrying out a program to ensure that people are fed and those, uh, you know, the, the, the basic foodstuffs are delivered to people's homes and so on. But it has to be conceded that with the blockade that's carried out in the United States, there are some shortages and some challenges that they come up against, um, particularly chicken, which they import from southern states of the US, uh, that they don't have as much access to as they had previously. So there's some element of kind of rationing that's going on in with some specific uh, elements of, of, of diet. But in general, there is a monitoring to ensure that everybody has a basic provision uh, and therefore, you know, is is looked after. Um, yeah, just to interject there for a moment, Bernard, it's uh, it's also, uh, with the Cuban government making sure that everybody has enough to enough to eat on a daily basis and monitoring that situation, it's a stark contrast, actually, is it not, to the gigantic food lines you see in the continental United States now in places like Los Angeles, New York, and the other major urban centres which have been hit hard by both the virus and also the jobless, the gigantic jobless rate that's uh, taken off in the United States, but you never hear anything about the uh, the, the failures of the of the capitalist system to provide for its people um, in the media. It's always others oh, uh, bread queues in a socialist country, but 
at least in uh, even in uh, socialist nations in hard times the governments has striven to make sure that the the basic nutritional requirements are met whereas if you're out of work and um, can't get unemployment insurance in the United States now you are in a desperate situation um, it's a it's a remarkable contrast is it not it certainly is, and I think it's even more stark if you look at the situation in many Latin American countries there where people are self-employed, for example, and they need to go out every day to earn sufficient to sustain themselves and their families. There are people now who are seriously becoming malnourished and there are real threats to people's well-being and, and ability to survive. And this is on a wide scale in countries like Ecuador, um, but also in, in, in some other parts of Latin America. So it's a big contrast between what is happening in Cuba. There are, I mean, people are going out shopping in Cuba. They have to, as I said, wear face masks and they, 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 they do go shopping and there are queues. And this is something of an anxiety because obviously uh, people have to try and maintain social distancing. And, and uh, you know, that's not always easy. Um, but certainly in terms of kind of ensuring that people have a basic provision that's very much uh, taken on board by the by the by the state and by the local organizations and anybody for example who is over 60 uh, they make sure that they get packs of food delivered to them so people in kind of mm. multiple categories are especially cared for and looked after yeah and if you compare the um the sensible and rational planning approach of the Cuban government with the what I can only describe as the insanity displayed by Bolsonaro um, in Brazil, sacking um, two health ministers in almost as many weeks. And of course, this is after he, he has, uh, on presumably to please his, his US masters, turfed out the Cuban medical mission that was there. And now he's uh, faced with a situation where Brazil might be the hardest hit country in Latin America, um, due to the fact that the, the the Brazilian government can't even agree with itself on what to do, with its own president running around saying the whole thing's a hoax. Um, it's it's a remarkable contrast there with the the largest nation and the most ec potentially an economically powerful nation to to be since the fall of uh, or the, 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 the judicial coup against Dilma Rousseff and the imprisonment of Lula, and just how quickly um the the american allies have managed to bring down um the bring down the standard of living and the uh, quality of life in brazil and you compare it to cuba which is obviously a much smaller country and much smaller economy and it just goes to show what the socialist planning system can do and what genuine independence that can do can't it well that's that's correct in the the situation in Brazil is is now approaching the proportions of the United States of America in terms of the numbers of deaths. Uh, there were previously, um, I think I'm writing saying something like 10,000 uh, medical staff from Cuba working in Brazil, particularly in the northeastern region, in the poorer parts of that country, uh, and also taking care of um, uh, some of the indigenous population. Uh, and Bol Bolsonaro is absolutely, uh, you know, a classic racist, uh, saying that in his view, you know, that the deaths of um, black people in, in Brazil would help to purify the country. I mean, he's 
statements on this are, are are absolutely grotesque and horrendous in terms of his you know blatant and crude racism and the uh, Cubans who were in Brazil were particularly in those poorer regions with a large proportion of black population uh, and in the areas that were close to uh, and associated with indigenous peoples in, in Brazil. And uh, it, it is they who are being hardest hit as a result of that. And there is some turmoil in, in, in Brazil, considerable turmoil. I mean, there are even sections of the military who are disquieted by the way Bolsonaro is acting. And um, although they're not about to launch a coup, they are certainly um, critical of him. And I think uh, in whatever way they seem they feel able to, they're trying to mitigate the worst uh, consequences of the policies that he's adopting. And and Moreno in, in Ecuador, you could say there is a similar callousness about the way in which he is operating and, and the policies that he's enacting. And as I said, uh, many people whose, whose livelihood is uh, extremely precarious because it's on a day-to-day -day basis of being able to sell goods or, or to provide uh, services um, are now vulnerable and are in danger of um, being completely malnourished and suffering from the consequences of that. And hunger is a real um, fear that stalks uh, many of these countries uh, as a result of the neoliberal policies that have been enacted. And of course, the United States, we referring to that, uh, has, has taken an extremely aggressive attitude, not only in its kind of belligerence and demagogy, talking about the World Health Organization, but going so far in the case of Venezuela, for example, to uh, cooperate in blocking uh, a request from Venezuela to the International Monetary Fund for a $5 billion loan in order to provide medicines and uh, PPE and, and equipment to treat uh, people suffering from COVID-19. And the US was part of the uh, force, if you like, within the World Health Organization, uh, within the International Monetary Fund, sorry, um, that blocked this. So you can see the stark contrast between the callousness that the US policies um, produce and the neoliberal economic policies that are carried out in parts of Latin America and contrast that very strongly with what has happened in Venezuela and, of course, outstandingly what is happening in Cuba. Yeah, and uh, that brings us to the next question, really, which is that the ever since the fall of uh, the socialist bloc in Europe and the Soviet Union, the different US presidents and key US political figures have been um, fully expecting uh, the Cuban revolution to fail and fall and, their, and their, themselves to be able to um, resume their, the relationship that was with the, they had with the, uh, the, the old Cuban puppet regimes. But the Cuban revolution has been persistent in its um, persistence in its not just its survival, but its evolution into different stages. I wonder if you could talk a little bit, Bernard, about the, the, the I think Castro referred to it as the special period in the 1990s, the difficult period coming out of the the fall of the Soviet Union. And why, it, why is it that you think that the Cuban revolution was able to survive <clears throat> that period when a lot of other countries fell to uh, capitalist counter-revolution? That's a big question. <laughs> um, <I> mean, <laughs> just, to, just to paint a picture for people, um, with in particular the, the uh, 
fall of the Soviet Union in the late 1980s, uh, 1990, um, Cuba lost a, a, a major trading partner. And I, one of the myths to dispel is that Cuba was kind of propped up by um, by the Soviet Union and by countries in Eastern Europe. Uh, it actually was engaged in trade and it traded sugar uh, with uh, with Russia, with the Soviet Union. Um, and it had, uh, you know, a, a positive trading relationship. Uh, and that was how its economy was able to develop. And with the ending of the Soviet Union in the late 80s, early 90s, what happened was that uh, it's the GDP of, of Cuba literally fell by 33%, a colossal uh, collapse in terms of its, uh, because of its loss of its trading partnerships uh, and all of that, that that entailed. So it was faced with a real uh, catastrophic uh, crisis economically. Uh, and it's an island, so obviously um, that added to its woes and that was deepened by the offensive launched by the United States of America, which was to strengthen the blockade that was being carried out by the introduction of new legislation uh, in the mid 1990s, the what was what is called the Torricelli Act and the Helms Burton Act, which prohibited, uh, first of all, countries companies inside the United States of America from trading with Cuba and from vice versa from Cuba being able to trade with the U.S. And the significance of that was that there were many um, there were trading relationships that continued. In addition to that, the legislation that was brought in introduced extraterritorial measures, which meant that countries um, other than the United States, in Europe, for example, Britain and every other country in the world, which engaged in uh, trade with Cuba could be penalised if, for example, something like 10% of the uh, components within uh, a goods that they were trading with Cuba, so let's say it was... Um, um, a, a car, for example, if 10% of its components were made in the United States or were made from material which originated in the United States, the metal or whatever it might be, then those companies could be fined for carrying out that trade. And furthermore, any uh, vessels or ships that were trading with Cuba, uh, which went and took goods to Cuba, they could be blocked from entering United States ports for six months at least, which meant that uh, clearly from a capitalist point of view, vessels would often be carrying goods not only to Cuba, but to other parts of the Caribbean and the southern United States of America. Uh, that would mean a, a real cost uh, forfeit on them because they wouldn't be able to kind of double up and uh, take goods that were bound for U.S. ports. So. Uh, there was a, a combination of the loss of United uh, of, of the Soviet Union's trade and an intensification of the blockade that was carried out. Cuba, as a consequence of that, just to take one area of the economy, for example, agriculture, was faced with the loss of massive imports of um, uh, fertilizers from uh, from the Soviet Union. And ironically, what this meant was instead of being able to use the artificial fertilizers which were imported, it had to develop its own agricultural uh, economy uh, and had to supplement or provide alternatives uh, to that that would ensure that the productivity uh, within agriculture re remained at a high enough level to provide some of the foodstuffs. Uh, it, Cuba still imports something like 50% of its uh, of its food. 
Uh, and this was a real challenge, but it meant actually, paradoxically, that it went on to a much more sustainable form of production. And uh, indeed, is in nowadays is credited uh, by um, international bodies with its level of uh, sustainability that it has taken on. But interestingly, one of the things that happened too, and I, I talked to Cuban uh, academics about this, is that uh, the revolution um, gave authority to um, university establishments and other, uh, other areas of the economy to look for the development of uh, substitutes that would replicate and, and, and uh, supplant uh, goods that it had previously imported. And for example, um, in the area of, of building materials, uh, they developed um, a way of recycling cement in such a way that the carbon emissions from that recycling process were greatly reduced from previous forms of production of cement. Uh, and so it produced a much more sustainable uh, way of, uh, of, of providing building materials. But in addition to that, what they did was to authorize uh, the expansion of locally developed uh, schemes that would help replace those, replace building materials, which they were no longer imported. Uh, and they were able to carry out production that uh, helped to, as I say, replace those goods that they couldn't bring into the country. So there was a lot of innovative techniques that were brought in as a consequence of the blockade that was imposed from the US or not imposed, sorry, but was strengthened against them from the US in addition to the losses that they face from the Soviet Union. So uh, there was a lot of self-development, uh, um, self-sustainable development that took place in that period, albeit the calorific intake that people had uh, in terms of their diet uh, fell absolutely dramatically. I was told that it fell from somewhere in the region of in excess of 2000 calories a day to in the region of sort of 1200 calories a day and people went through hard times but they did it in a way which uh, protected people which uh, in which in particular people understood why it was happening and they understood that the measures that were being taken were designed to ensure that the whole of society survived and was able to uh, deal with this uh, and uh, uh, and renew itself in the future. And of course, that was the time when they moved particularly towards the expansion of tourism as a way of um, supplanting um, the trade that they had in order that they could gain currency that would be able to be used on the international markets in order to purchase goods uh, and needs and necessities uh, to, sup to supplant what they had lost from their trade previously with the Soviet Union. Uh, that's an inter a really interesting uh, response there, Bernard, because I, I, I was thinking of the um, necessity being the mother of invention, as you were talking there, particularly about the developments in recycling concrete. And it it's a, a tribute to uh, so the socialist system that the that they were able to get through that period. But it, doesn't it? It also speaks to the fact that the revolution obviously has much deeper roots uh, within the Cuban population than the um, the United States government assumes. You see, I, f I think my own interpretation is I think the, uh, the the U.S. government has got high on its own supply of propaganda quite a lot of the time. 
in that they they assume that um, they started to believe their own their own lies about uh, oh it's just Castro and his brother running everything and uh, the Cuban people are just desperate to um, <laughs> resume the Batista years again but this time with the internet. Um, so can you talk about the the roots that how uh, the deep roots of the Cuban Revolution and particularly this leads me into a, a expansion of that into a question of um, the U.S. then seems to believe that Cuba is just a dictatorship. Um, so can you talk about the, how deeply rooted the revolution is in Cuban society and how that translates to uh, into the, the relationship between the Cuban population and their government? Yes, I, I, if I may, I'll just add a footnote to what I was saying about the concrete because it's an interesting story which you, you, might, be in, you, you might well find uh, yes, of personal interest. And that is that the person I heard this from was a, um, a, a professor who worked at the University of Santa Clara. Uh, and we were waiting in the airport lounge at Jose Marti Airport in Havana to catch a flight to London. And he was en route to China. And the techniques that they developed with this concrete, they were going to talk to the Chinese government about. And I believe that the, the Chinese have now entered into a contract with Cuba uh, on a massive scale to develop uh, exactly the techniques that they've uh, perfected in Cuba uh, as a way of developing um, a sustainable production of, um, of concrete in China itself. Because as you know, um, China is a massive um, consumer of concrete in the world. I mean, it's, I think it's um, used more in concrete in the last 20 years of the, of, of the last century than the United States has done in its whole history. So that just gives you some sense of it. But the interesting thing in addition to that is that they're working with universities in Switzerland and believe it or not, the University of Derby uh, to actually work on how this can be expanded um, elsewhere. So it's a, it's an interesting mm -hmm. story. But it, it also leads on to your other question. And that is the person that I was talking to um, you know, was explaining this process to me and was talking about life in Cuba and we talked about his family and, and, uh, and about circumstances in Cuba. And he said, look, you know, he said, I'm not a member of the Communist Party in Cuba. He said, but I completely support the Cuban Revolution. Um, you know, I think that the government acts in the interest of the people and we have an opportunity to influence and affect uh, what happens. Uh, and uh, he, I mean, interestingly, he had actually been at school with the current president of Cuba, President uh, Diaz-Canel. And when I had the good fortune to meet the Cuban president in London, when he was here for a very brief visit, I uh, told him that I'd met his school friend. And he said, oh, yes, he's, you know, he's still a, a good friend of mine. So that was a nice kind of personal uh, way of kind of... Yeah. Uh, the story following up, but it, it, it did illustrate to me um, the complete authenticity of the revolution in Cuba. That it's, um, I mean, it, it's uh, absolutely the case that the roots of the Cuban revolution uh, are embedded in the anti-imperialist struggle that went on in the 19th century with the three um, wars that were carried out against Spanish imperialism. The, the um, Wars which uh, embodied also, of course, the liberation of, of slaves in Cuba and the ending of slavery in Cuba, uh, the fight against um, 
Spanish imperialism and the right for Cuba to determine its own future. Uh, and that uh, was led, of course, by Jose Marte, who was killed himself in 1896 in a battle uh, in that independence struggle. And if you look at uh, the writings of Jose Marti and what he said about seeking independence, he was very, very conscious uh, that independence was not just something that was a, a word or something to be invoked, but actually meant complete independence and sovereignty and the right of Cuba to determine its own future. And he was conscious, too, of the extent to which the United States of America was very much uh, determined to impose its will on, on Cuba. And this goes back to the early part of the 19th century, Quincy Adams and, and, and other uh, presidential and secretary of state figures who said and viewed Cuba as simply appendage of the, of the United States and wanted it to be uh, just another state within the Union. Uh, and Marty understood this and understood very well that if that were to happen, it would be the end of a Cuban identity, the end of Cuban culture, uh, not only the removal of Spanish, but 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 the ending of everything that Cuba stood for in its independence struggle. And I think people don't appreciate that. And, and if you go to any school in Cuba, you will see statues of Jose Marti outside every school. And Cuba's uh, independence has that authenticity. But it was a struggle that went on right the way through when the United States basically turned Cuba into a neo-colony um, and sought to ensure that anything it did was only with the approval of, of, of Washington and the White House. Um, Cuba still was in that struggle for its independence. So in the, in the 1930s, in the fight against Machado, who was regarded as the Caribbean Mussolini, uh, the Cubans were fighting then for their independence too. And they were faced with the background of the US wanting to impose its will so that um, we saw Cuba being turned into uh, a playground, especially for the mafia who uh, ran casinos and prostitution in, in, in Cuba. And anybody who's seen um, Godfather 2, I think it was, uh, where there's a yeah. scene with um, uh, Alinsky, um as cutting up a birthday cake, which is uh, sh in the shape of, of the island of Cuba. Uh, that's not just an image. I mean, it is a very vivid and, and very accurate portrayal of the, of the situation, but it is an accurate reflection of, of what the mafia did in, in, in Cuba with um, uh, they literally bought politicians. And at some stages, there was a famous incident where two wings of the police in Havana were actually in a gunfight against each other because different components of the police had been purchased by different wings of the mafia. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so th this whole thing about the authenticity of the Cuban revolution, I think, it, it, and its, its embeddedness in the population it is absolutely true. And people grossly underestimate and misunderstand uh, what happened in Cuba in the course of the revolution. Of course, Cuba went on to recognize who its real allies were, and that's where the relationship with the Soviet Union developed, not before the revolution, nor even during the revolution, but after the revolution, uh, in terms of developing trade and, um, as socialist countries should, conducting trade on the basis of respect and on the basis of 
recognition of the autonomy and independence of uh, of countries, uh, but also in a way which recognized recognized that the trade was in order to uh, supplement and ensure that uh, fellow country, fellow socialist countries could survive. Mm. Well, it's a, I remember reading the um, Castro's uh, biography that he uh, he collaborated with the, I think it was a Spanish journalist and writer um, on it called, called My Life and. Um, he, he talks there quite extensively um, in when he's talking about his inspirations. And he talks a lot about Jose Marti, about uh, how much of an inspiration um, he was to Castro and all that generation of revolutionaries. And it's it, it's a thing that the I think that everybody in the uh, the the so-called mainstream of the media and politics misses, which is what it. Um, what it means to actually achieve genuine independence having been dominated not just by one colonial power in spain but by the another in the uh, in the united states and, and also um how much the united states is pathologically opposed to the sovereignty of not just cuba but all caribbean and latin american nations uh for instance and look at look at what they did and have and have been doing and are doing to a nation like haiti um, which has been having led a heroic struggle in the time of the French Revolution to free itself from slavery, has been made to pay heavily for that ever since, right down to this day by the uh, different um, different colonial powers in the, that have been dominant in the region. Or the rage that the United States has towards a nation like Nicaragua for daring to um, strike out in an independent route and also daring to become um, sovereign in terms of the food that it produces, being able to feed its own nation. So the the achievements of Cuba in terms of um, um, maintaining that genuine independence is great. And also the um, the fact that the, the Cuban population feels this um, very much strong attachment to a revolutionary tradition that goes back over a hundred years is something which isn't really understood either. Um, so again, the US getting high on its own supply there um, in terms of not understanding the country that they're trying to uh, they're trying to strangle. But to look at the um, then the you, we got up to the you was talking about the period of uh, the Batista dictatorship and slightly before that. So if we I want the audience to get an idea of where the the Cuban Revolution found the country in the in the 1950s. And you were describing there the scene in Godfather Two, where the the Mayalansky character literally cuts up a cake of the island, which is uh, a vivid image. But so by the time um, of Fidel Castro uh, carrying out his first revolutionary actions, what was the st what was the state of life for the the average Cuban worker, the average Cuban peasant? Uh, on the land back then? Well, um, great impoverishment um, in terms of, for example, the literacy rate was, I think, somewhere in the region of 44, 45%. It was very, very low amongst adults. Um, and in terms of the security of employment, it was um, precarious, to say the least. And you had a situation in which um, Trade union rights were not respected under the <coughs> Batista, Batista dictatorship, and land ownership was was dominated by 
uh, foreign companies and by some big landowners. So one of the first things that happened, uh, and this goes to your previous question about why the Cuban revolution is rooted in the people. Uh, one of the first acts was the declaration of Havana uh, in the early 60s when the distribution of land was a major part of the first enactment of the of the Cuban revolution. Um, in some ways uh, similar, not dissimilar to what happened in the uh, early years of the Russian revolution after 1917 when the Bolsheviks uh, redistributed the land. And what happened in Cuba was that uh, any uh, any uh, land that was greater or holding that was greater than a thousand acres was redistributed to the peasants who worked that land uh, with the exception of a tiny handful of um, very productive uh, farms which were uh, allowed to remain intact but i think that was an essential part of it so that people felt they had a uh, they literally had a part of the revolution they owned a part of the of the revolution and that was i think a critical uh, development and in added to that the other major initiative which they took in the early years of the revolution was the literacy campaign and this was a colossal social undertaking and it has many features and many um, ramifications in my view it's not just about people learning to be literate uh, but it had a social impact. So, for example, um, hundreds of thousands of um, people went out into the countryside, into the workplaces and into the local communities to teach people who were not literate uh, how to read and write. And uh, when they did that, the uh, criteria are, were internationally recognised um, uh, ways of judging what constitutes literacy, not just people, as it were, pirate fashion repeated something that they were spoon fed, but actually being able to to read and write for themselves independently, autonomously as independent learners. And this was a colossal undertaking. And, and what that did was it mobilized in particular youth from the urban areas who went out into the countryside, young people as young as 12 and, and 13 and 14, going out into the countryside, teaching older generations, people older than themselves, you know, the records are there of 12-year-olds literally teaching 80 and 90-year-olds how to, to read and write. Uh, and I think this had a, a big impact from the point of view of not only educating the, the people, which again, just to hark back to our previous discussion, was one of the key things that Jose Marte insisted on, that to be free, people had to be educated. In other words, they had to be able themselves to read and write and make judgments about politically what was happening in the world and be informed about the yeah. world in order to kind of make those judgments. And that process, I think, not only transformed because it, it, it virtually eradicated illiteracy. So within 18 months of that campaign beginning, um, literacy rates in Cuba were in the region of 95, 96 percent, extremely high. Yeah much higher than anywhere else in Latin America. And um, mm. in the process of doing that, I think it brought those young people in particular into contact with people in the countryside. So they began to appreciate what the lives of people in the countryside was like, uh, and therefore understanding the kind of social changes which were enacted by the revolution with the land reform, with the redistribution of land, and with giving rights to the peasantry in terms of 
in terms of their ownership of the land. So this this was a not only a, an act in terms of the question of literacy, it was a social act in terms of homogenizing the revolution, in my view, in terms of bringing people together and getting people in the countryside to appreciate what was present uh, in the urban uh, uh, towns and, and, and cities and so on, and vice versa. People in the cities and the towns appreciating the lives of people in the countryside and therefore being able to empathize and, and, and express solidarity with them in their uh, struggle for survival. So they're really, uh, the process you're describing there, Bernard, is the, it seems to be the real, uh, real attention to building a unified nation, um, one that wasn't, uh, one that was um, not going to be um, subject to being uh, torn apart by uh, divisions imposed in the colonial period and after, but the, the building a, a spirit of solidarity and cooperation throughout the island of Cuba that um, it seems to have lasted to this day. That, that's true. And I mean, I think what many people don't appreciate is that actually um, there was, uh, in the course of the revolution itself, in, in, in as the struggle essentially moved from the east of the island, from Santiago and the Sierra Maestra, up through the centre of the island, uh, Santa Clara, and on to Havana, that in those areas that were liberated from Batista and in which Batista's forces were no longer able to operate, they began to create schools in the course of the revolution itself. So the question of education was seen to be um, absolutely integral to the whole concept of the revolution in terms of not only mobilizing people to fight injustice, but in terms of an educative process that uh, was expanding people's understanding and ability to see the world and, and understand and appreciate the world in a critical way that, that strengthened their uh, political capacities as well. So, again, it was a multifaceted revolution that was taking place, which I think sometimes in the Western media, it's convenient. Uh, I mean, I don't want to detract from the guerrilla struggle and the struggle of the armed forces, but it's very often uh, seen in a, in a very one-sided, one-dimensional perspective, whereas the revolution, I think, was a, a, a social action that was engaged and mobilised people. I mean, just to take another slightly diversion, but but another way of illustrating this, um, there is a famous uh, event that took place in the revolution, which was the attack on the armoured train at Santa Clara, uh, when Che Guevara attacked a train that was bringing um, reserves and munitions to the Batista forces in the course of, uh, of of the struggle of the revolution. Che was told by workers in Havana who were working in the railway factory that they were building this train. And they said to Che, do you want us to sabotage it or what do you want us to do? Uh, and Che got the message back to the workers in Havana to say, no, hang on, keep building it. Um, just let me know how it's progressing. And if you're going too fast, uh, slow things up a bit and so on. And so they completed the train. So Che knew exactly what was happening. So there was this coordination between the armed struggle and the struggle of workers in Havana that was combined. Uh, and the same happened mm -hmm. in Santa Clara in the city itself, that when the attack on the armored train took place, there was an uprising in the whole city, uh, a general strike that took place, which acted in a way to prevent um, the ability to Batista to redeploy forces to uh, counter 
uh, Che's initiative. So in some times there is, you know, it's protracted, presented rather, that, and it's true, of course, there were heroic uh, battles that took place. But what I'm trying to say is that the revolution was a much more complex, integrated social phenomenon than I think is some way sometimes presented, certainly in the British media. But also it has to be said, sadly, by some sections of the left who have a very, uh, they absorb this um, popular media way of perceiving the way the, Russia, the Cuban revolution was carried out and fail completely to understand this. And there's, for those who are interested, there's an interesting book which has been published called The Hidden History of the Working Class in the Cuban Revolution, which is a book by uh, Steve Cushion um, that talks about uh, the rank of file organisations, the revolutionary currents within the trade union movement who were acting in coordination with uh, the armed struggle that Fidel and Che and Camilo Sanfuegos and all the other revolutionaries were were conducting at the same time. And this huge uh, social consciousness that was developed through things like the, the literacy campaign was at one with that whole process. Yeah, uh, it's an excellent examples that you've given there of how the the revo revolutions that any successful revolution is going to be taking place on multiple levels and uh, the cuban revolution the fact that it um carried out it, the revolution was a an ongoing process behind the like the military battle lines where the new society was literally being built as the uh, the revolutionary forces advanced yeah. and that it, this was a very much a struggle, a unifying struggle of the working class and the peasantry coming together to uh, power power the revolution forward. And it's often, and this was something that um, Chano Che wrote about in um, the, in his uh, addresses on the subject. And I think I remember seeing uh, Fidel Castro talk about it in his uh, biography as well. Uh, the fact that it was a was he always paid tribute to the ordinary workers and peasants of cuba in terms of their contribution to the revolution and whilst the propaganda of the united states and the and the rest of the west has focused on the role of castro and a few other individuals without that mass involvement of the of the cuban people there'd have been no way the revolution would have survived all that time with the the, the hostile imperial power on its doorstep no, that's so, right, yeah. yeah. Uh, so looking then at the, um, the next question, we talked a, a bit about how the, the involvement of the uh, the workers and the peasants in the uh, building uh, the, the socialist government in Cuba. But the I wanted to look at also at um, the uh, some of the other achievements of the, uh, the immediate post-revolutionary period. We talked about the the mass literacy program and the the tremendous importance of that to the revolution. Um, there's also the I mean Cuba is famous rightly for its achievements in the field of uh, medicine and medical research. Can you talk a little bit about the building of the um, the health system in Cuba in the early years and how and and how that was became such an important part of the revolution? Well, one of the things that they inherited from the Batista regime was a small handful per head of population of, of, of doctors, um, just a tiny number. I think it was 6,000. It may have been less than that. Uh, and also some of the, the, the doctors um, 
uh, left uh, Cuba and uh, went to the United States. Uh, and at the time, um, there were very few medical faculties. And of course, all these universities at the time were uh, privatized, that we would say now, so that only people with sufficient money to be able to go to university could stay and do a medical course, which might be five, six years or, or longer. Uh, and, and, and so ordinary working class people couldn't afford to do that. And people from the countryside couldn't afford to do that. So uh, that was a, a major part of the of the changes that took place within Cuba was the expansion of medical education and university education more generally, um, increasing the capacity of Cuba to provide sufficient doctors to take care of its own people, but also uh, to be able eventually, uh, as we know very well, to um, actually send medics abroad and, and to go to other countries across the world. Indeed, in fact, I mean, it's a, one of the examples of the character of the Cuban Revolution is that this spirit was there from the very, very, very earliest days. So that I think it was 1960-61, um, there was an, an earthquake that happened in Chile and the young fledgling Cuban Revolution with not enough doctors to care for its own people, nevertheless sent medics to help um, in Chile and, and, and to participate in in the treatment of, of people injured in the course of that earthquake. Uh, and that's been uh, a, a major part of it. And in terms of health, it's seen health and the well-being of people um, as being one of the central concerns uh, of the of the people as a whole and of the government. I mean, people often uh, in Britain uh, try to throw accusations which are completely false and unwarranted against Cuba about human rights. But of course, the first and fundamental and pr principal and absolutely essential human right is the right to life. Um, and that's something that we see tragically in many countries across the world, in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, uh, is, is something that is a real uh, tragic problem in terms of when you see the infant mortality rates and the rates of people dying from curable diseases and so on and so forth. So medicine was one of the fundamental issues along with literacy that the Cuban revolution addressed and it expanded the um, capacities and so much so that, uh, you know, people who previously would not even have dreamt of becoming doctors um, were actually able to become doctors. So people in the countryside who came from families with, with no wealth to speak of. So if you go to Cuba now, and, and I've visited many schools in the countryside, and you ask a class of young children what they want to be, and hands will shoot up. Um, in every school that you go to, I my experience is that it's something like a quarter of the children who put their hands up, and they'll all put their hands up for different reasons, but it's something like a quarter of them will say medicine because it's really valued, you know, in terms of kind of people's um, well-being as being absolutely central. So the medicine has, has been developed in Cuba, has been expanded, and the proportion of um, doctors per head of population in Cuba is um, much, much better than it is in Great Britain, for example. I, I can't remember the exact recent figures, but I, I, I think it's... Uh, something like, um, you know, two or three times per head of population, the number of doctors available uh, in Cuba. Uh, and of course, medicine is completely free. You don't pay for any medicine in Cuba from 
the, literally the cradle to the grave. Uh, it's it's completely without any kind of charges, no prescription charges, no charges for treatment and so on. Um, and in addition to that, one of the incredible initiatives that the Cubans have taken was to establish what they call the Latin American School of Medicine. And it was established initially to train doctors for countries in Latin America which were not producing sufficient uh, medical practitioners to, to, to care for their own people. But it's now gone much broader than that. So that in, for example, the Latin American School of Medicine in Havana now, you will actually find doctors from the United States, or young people rather, from the United States of America who can't afford to train as doctors in their own country coming to train in Cuba. I mean, that's an incredible thing. And uh, that nevertheless is the case. And you'll also find young students from all over the world, from Africa, from Asia, uh, from countries like Pakistan, where Cuba went in, um, I think it was 2006, to treat victims of a terrible earthquake that occurred in Kashmir. And something like three quarters of the victims of that earthquake, more than a million, I think it was, people who suffered were actually treated by Cuban doctors. And Cuba had mm. no diplomatic relations with, with Pakistan whatsoever, none. Uh, but it nevertheless sent volunteer medical uh, doctors and so on to Pakistan to help with that. And then subsequently, it offered scholarships to students from Pakistan uh, to go and train in Cuba uh, in the School of Medicine. And those doctors returned back to Pakistan to practice in their own localities. And this has happened for many, many other countries. I've, I've met students from African nations and South, South Africa and Latin American countries and so on. Uh, and the Cuban medical practitioners in particular have also got what's called the Henry Reeves Brigade. And this was a team of medics which was constituted um, around about the time of Hurricane Katrina, which people will remember devastated some of the southern states of the United States of America, and particularly New Orleans. And Cuba had 1,400 doctors literally ready to fly to New Orleans to help treat the crisis that was unfolding there. Uh, and the United States of America refused them entry, uh, despite the fact that they were going to the US completely without any conditions, no uh, conditionality by Cuba saying you've got to end the blockade, you've got to uh, recognize Cuba or anything like that. Um, and this Henry Reeves Brigade has actually subsequently in the last couple of years been awarded an extremely prestigious prize by the World Health Organization, um, mm -hmm. and it's named after a doctor. I forget the name of the specific award, but it is in recognition of what the Cubans have achieved. So in the international field, they are absolutely outstanding. And to give you an example, they uh, obviously the catastrophe that happened in West Africa with the Ebola epidemic that broke out, when the yeah. organization was looking for responses. It contacted three countries, Cuba, the United States of America and Britain. And mm. Cuba sent 400 medics to West Africa, much more than any other country, to treat uh, patients there and to handle it. And that's why 
their expertise is also being called on at the present point in time because they have that knowledge of how to treat epidemics uh, on this huge scale and the kind of medical protocols that are appropriate to apply in those kind of contexts. Uh, they don't, uh, just to explain, they haven't developed yet a vaccine for COVID-19, uh, but they have uh, three uh, medications which were employed for the treatment of uh, uh, of cancer sufferers and, and other forms of respiratory illness, which alleviate the symptoms and enable the body to fight back. Uh, one of them is in interferon, it's called. And there are something like 80 countries across the world who are currently in discussions with Cuba about uh, being able to utilize these uh, medicines and, and uh, cooperating with the Cubans in the exploration of the use of these medicines, particularly to deal with uh, COVID-19 patients. And it was interesting that for the first time ever, I heard on the BBC Newsnight the other night, a, um, a leading specialist in Britain actually talking about Cuba as potentially one of the countries in the world that was uh, in the forefront of uh, possibly developing a, a vaccine for COVID-19. So recognition of Cuba's um, biomedical uh, biotechnology um, is is now uh, being accepted, I think, much more widely. Well, it's uh, reality intrudes into the BBC uh, on certain occasions, and that appears to be one of them. Um, the, the remarkable thing that I think another comparison to draw is that with both Cuba and, of course, also the, the Chinese government saying that the any vaccine developed in China will be made available as a, as a public good for the world. Uh, contrast between that and the, um, the government of the United States, first of all, trying to buy out an entire German um, pharmaceutical company that was working on potential vaccines, and then essentially uh, threatening anybody else who, um, who, who, tries to, who tries to deviate from the path that they've set down, again, shows the difference between the just the approach to basic diplomacy and engagement with other countries between uh, socialist-led governments and um, the, the, the ultimate capitalist regime. Um, I wanted to look at also another act of international solidarity, which, again, has kind of been overlooked and forgotten, which is the role of uh, Cuba in battling the the apartheid regime in South Africa, and this was a, something that was always acknowledged by Nelson Mandela himself. In fact, um, he always made a made a great deal of um, uh, out of his positive relationship with Fidel Castro and the Cuban nation. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, what the uh, Cuban government did with regard to? Um, uh, solidarity with the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, including their, uh, the solidarity they showed with the battle against the apartheid regime's forces in places like Namibia? Well, the initial reason uh, that Cuba sent uh, military forces to Angola was at the request of the Angolan government, which was facing an onslaught um, by uh, forces that were hostile to it. In fact, they were forces that were backed substantially by the CIA uh, that were seeking to invade and overthrow the legitimate uh, Angolan government. And so the initial um, reason for Cuba going to Africa in this context was to act as uh, simply defence forces to protect the country against incursions and so on. And, and 
uh, there were issues to do with oil and to do with wealth in the country that uh, forces behind um, the CIA-backed uh, insurgents were, were, were wanting to get hold of or wanting to seize. So that was the the first stage uh, of the of the process that they were involved in, and the very early stages. It was called Operation Carlotta, um, and Carlotta was a a slave, a black slave in Cuba who took part in the struggle for independence. And it was, in a sense, um, an expression of Cuba's uh, recognition of its own heritage, its own African heritage, that um, the operation was given that name. Uh, later, um, as you say, the South African Defence Forces um, began to extend from Southwest Africa, where they were uh, illegally occupying it um, and expanding its presence in South Africa, suppressing the South West African People's Organization, SWAPO, which was carrying out an independence struggle in Namibia. Uh, it wasn't called Namibia at the time, it was just called South West Africa, against the um, uh, colonialism that the South African regime was carried out. And the South African Defence Forces going through um, Namibia sought to enter Angola in aid of these CIA-backed forces, backed forces um, was which uh, I think it was UNITA, I think it was uh, UNITA, which was seeking to attack the Angolan government. And in the course of doing that, they launched military offensives in the south of Angola, uh, and in particular uh, entered into battle with the Ang Angolan forces. And in the, given that the Cubans were present there, the Cubans, of course, went to give their support uh, in coordination with the Angolan forces to repulse the attacks of the South, South African Defence Forces. And together with uh, military forces from SWAPO, um, they joined together and uh, inflicted uh, a major defeat on the South African Defence Forces at Quito Carnivale. Uh, and repulsed them and threw them back. And essentially, um, this action uh, taught the South African Defence Forces and the apartheid regime uh, a bitter lesson, that they were not invincible, uh, that they were facing determined, principled uh, opponents who were not going to allow them to overrun their land, uh, and uh, threw them back. And the estimation by the African National Congress forces of the South African Communist Party and the forces fighting apartheid in uh, South Africa was that this was uh, a shattering of the uh, morale of the South of the South African government because it was faced with a reality that it was not invincible, that it couldn't just carry on as it wished to, uh, and and so this defence led to the securing of Angola. Uh, and eventually led to the liberation of Namibia and also was a contributory factor in the overthrow of apartheid in South Africa itself. And it was for that reason that Nelson Mandela, when he was released for pris from prison, visited Cuba as the first country uh, outside of South Africa to which he travelled. And of course, he received a rapturous welcome from the people of Cuba with mass demonstrations and um, uh, in a joint uh, speech with, with, with Fidel Castro, uh, they celebrated this liberation. 
uh, and uh, Fidel said that this was Cuba repaying uh, in a small way its uh, debts and acknowledgement through its African heritage. Uh, and it was pleased mm. to be able to do that. And Mandela in turn saying that, you know, uh, that the South people of South Africa would never, ever, ever forget the contribution that Cuba made in that course of that struggle. It's remarkable um, to think of the the fact that Man Mandela obviously valued that contribution very, very highly, along with the contribution of other anti-imperialist forces. But uh, in the what I can only describe as the Disneyfied version of Nelson Mandela, all of that gets cut out now, um, along with the uh, <laughs> the wretched role of the British government and and the United States in supporting the apartheid regime for an awfully long time. In fact, right up until the bitter end. Um, but they said that's a remarkable piece of history that I wanted to ask you about because it's again it's something that I don't think even quite a lot of people on the the left of British politics would uh, actually know about or understand. So it's important that um, that 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 legacy is talked about more. But to move on now to uh, back up to our our current period, I wanted to just to get your uh, take on. The fact that there was a process undergone in Cuba uh, a few years ago now uh, regarding the um, bringing up to date of the constitution of, of Cuba. And I, I read about this in preparation for talking to you today and the remarkable uh, degree of consultation and engagement uh, between the Cuban population and the government over the new constitution. So um, as, a, as a further demonstration of just how much more democratic the Cuban system is. Uh, I wondered if you could speak a little bit, a bit about the formation and adoption of the new constitution and uh, the process the Cubans went through to actually arrive at the finished the finished product. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of these, again, part of the kind of mainstream media ways of presenting Cuba that it's a police state and this kind of caricature presentation. I mean, in fact, it's an extremely democratic country. Um, they have elections for the parliament every four years. Um, they are fixed term parliaments. Um, their candidates are elected um, for regional constituencies. And in order to be nominated, you have to be nominated by your peers, by your local community and your local community then has an election and there's a runoff of candidates locally and then there are further stages in the national election and so on and there's a whole process that goes forward um, and candidates who stand for election by the way uh, they do not get paid a salary as members of parliament they simply retain their existing salary and the jobs that they're engaged in and over and above that they can be recalled at any time so if people are not satisfied with the way their members of parliament are acting, they can be called before a, a local meeting. And if it's the view of, of people that they are not doing the job satisfactorily, they can be removed and a new election can take place for a new member of parliament. <clears throat> so it's far more democratic than our situation where you can imagine that given people's experience with COVID-19 and the way this Johnson government is behaving. I think there are a lot of us who would want to see um, some of the members of parliament recalled and, um, you know, a whole process of re-election taking place as a judgment on on the callousness of uh, of the British government towards people. But in Cuba, yes, certainly. 
Uh, just to interject there for a moment, Bernard, I mean, it's it's a laugh when the, the, the British government dares to criticise anybody else's democratic process when we've still um, got the House of Lords in place for a start. Yes. Um, which is uh, they've they've moved in the tremendously progressive direction of no longer having it be the feudal aristocracy who at the very least would occasionally be entertaining, um, but uh, moved over to purely political appointees done by you know uh, cronyism, or yeah. the United States where the senators um, due to the way that 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 the chamber over there is elected. A Senate seat is effectively a job for life if you're in one, if you're in a solid uh, Democrat or Republican state. Uh, the idea of recallability is something that uh, never enters the conversation, either here or in the US. Um, but again, no surprise, but it's something I, think I want to, the listeners to be very well aware of, the fact that the Cubans, Cuban citizens do have genuine accountability in their representatives. Yeah, I mean... Over and above that, to add to the examples you were giving, I mean, I always um, think it's hilarious that the United States of America has the goal to talk about democracy when um, if the popular vote was the basis on which the president was elected, uh, Trump wouldn't be in office um, because, of course, what would have Bush? No, uh, because what happens is that they elect uh, an electoral college um, and that college, uh, which is a selected number of people, has a number of members per state. And it is that body which determines who the president is. So on a number of occasions, the popular vote has been, let's say, for a Democratic candidate. But the way the votes have been distributed across the college, uh, the Electoral College, it has meant that a Republican has come into office. So it's a complete farce. And of course, over and above that, the major thing is the question of money. You can't stand to be president of the United States unless literally you have billions of dollars at your disposal to carry out campaigns. In Cuba, you're yeah. not allowed to spend huge amounts of money uh, or indeed any money. Um, and people are not allowed to stand on the basis of uh, you know, of their financial backers. They have to stand independently in their own right on their own record. Now, the parliament is made up of two significant components. One is <clears throat> those people who are elected in the way I've just described. And I've given you a shorthand version. But in addition to that, there are representatives of the mass organizations. So, for example, the trade unions in Cuba the women's organization in Cuba, the students' organization in Cuba, all of these groups of people have the right to elect people onto the into parliament. So parliament is a composition of, uh, as it were, society in its locality and society in its workplace and in its social formations, like the trade unions, like the women's organizations, like the student movement, like the committees for the defense of the revolution. And each of these are able to um, contribute. Also, um, farmers, for example, in the cooperatives, they, their organization has representatives on. And it's also the case that if there are any sections of community that are not reflected in the constituency elections, uh, that they have the right to have people on the on the parliament as well. Um, and uh, the what you were talking about in terms of the constitution, then uh, that goes through an extremely rigorous uh, scrutiny at every level of society. 
So, for example, the recent constitution, um, people had meetings in their neighborhoods through what to call the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution in their localities. They had meetings in their trade unions. They had meetings in their mass organizations like the women's organizations. They had meetings in their professional bodies, in their workplaces. Uh, and each one of those bodies uh, was able to submit amendments or suggestions or uh, modifications of the of the document they were presented with. Uh, and those were voted on and constituted at the end of the day a, a concluding document, which was then submitted for discussion. Uh, and that went out for, for debate and approval. And the recent constitution was approved by somewhere around about 89, 90% of the people uh, voted for it. And there was opposition. Uh, part of that opposition was voiced by particularly um, uh, Pentecostal churches in Cuba, because there are many, many different religions in Cuba, something like 50 different uh, varieties of religion. And th there was a campaign against the constitution because it was thought that it was going to incorporate uh, proposals for the uh, legitimization of same-sex marriage. And of course, some of the, particularly the Protestant churches, were violently opposed to this and carried out a campaign with, one has to add as a footnote, uh, financing from some of their compatriots um, in the United States of America, some of their co-thinkers, I should have said, in the United States yeah. of America. Um, but uh, it wasn't actually part of the Constitution. That it is something that's in debate in Cuba and is likely to be part of uh, other legislation, not the Constitution. But in other words, what I'm saying is it's very clear that it was a democratic debate. It went through many, many phases and people were able to vote freely uh, and to express their view. And that Constitution was approved, as I said, by something like 89, 90 percent of the population. And uh, to think that in this country, the uh, we have a meltdown over uh, a referendum that took place four years ago, which we still haven't implemented the result of yet. <laughs> um, the uh, to bring our conversation towards a close, Bernard, I wondered if you could talk about the presidency of uh, Miguel Diaz de Canal, who's taken over since the uh, first the the retirement of Raúl Castro and obviously the passing away. Fidel Castro, and um, we it, it spurred a, a flurry of articles in by very ill-informed so-called journalists in the states and in Britain about, oh, is this the end for the Cuban Revolution? But uh, just from following the man's Twitter account and looking at the um, his actions since he came into government, he he seems just from my observations to be a man who's very committed to furthering the, the Cuban revolution. But I wondered if you could talk about what his approach has been so far and um, what what um, what distinguish, has distinguished his presidency so far. One of the things that the Cuban revolution is very conscious of is that, of course, that nobody lives forever. And there was a standing, yeah. there was a standing joke in Cuba that a lot of people, a lot of people I knew in this country, for example, wanted to say, would say things like, I must go to Cuba before Fidel dies. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, when you said to Cubans, you know, that they were saying this and you asked them, you know, well, what is going to happen when Fidel dies? The answer would come, oh, there'll be a state funeral. <laughs> in other words, people um, 
recognized uh, the mortality of individuals, but uh, nevertheless uh, didn't see it as something that was going to qualitatively change the character of the society in Cuba or the character of government or the nature of uh, the revolution in Cuba. And I think that's very true. I mean, um, everywhere you go in Cuba and you visit, I visit schools and I meet local community organizations. Um, it's absolutely self-evident that, that there's a new young generation um, with its own ideals and its own aspirations and its own way of thinking. But all of those within the framework of the Cuban Revolution. Um, uh, Raul Castro said when he was president that everything that can be changed should be changed. In other words, he recognized that you can't stand still, that society develops. I mean, just as an anecdote, by the way, one of the um, benefits, uh, stroke nuisances of um, Cuba being on Twitter and on the internet these days is that um, because of the time difference, I'm often just about to go to bed and a Cuban friend will contact me and start a conversation on WhatsApp that's very interesting and I can't get away <laughs> from um, because they're just uh, finishing work. Um, so, I, I, you know, uh, I think what is true is that the, the, they're very conscious that there is what they call, they call, for good reason, the historic generation, the generation that made the revolution um, is now um, moving on and, 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 and is dying and is passing away. And so that uh, the values uh, that sustain the revolution have to be handed on and taken on in their own way by a younger, new generation. And that is what Diaz Canel represents. He does represent this transition. So they built into the constitution, for example, that um, there will be a fixed term for the presidency, uh, that it will be two terms, so a maximum of eight years. They built in that um, uh, people will only be able to stand for the senior post if they are below a certain age. I think it's 65. I can't remember. Um, and so they're building in conditionalities that are emphasizing uh, that the, you know, the revolution is the property, if you like, of everybody. But it has to be particularly um, the young generation which takes on those things. And I think that's the case. So Diaz Canel comes from this, not an actual participant, but someone born around about the time of the revolution and part of this young wave of, of people and someone who came up um, experienced in the local uh, province where he came from as somebody who was uh, administratively competent and understood very much the kind of needs of people in the localities. And, and uh, people are saying, therefore, somebody very apt to deal with the present challenges that COVID-19 presents in terms of being able to manage the, the, the critical situation. Uh, and I think that's the case, you know, you can see that. And a particular effort to introduce more women into uh, the role in, of leadership in society. So in Cuba, for example, I think it's 49% of the members of parliament are women, uh, higher than I think there's only one other country in the whole world that has more women in its parliament than Cuba, um, and also younger people, um, and also uh, seeing the encouragement of members, black members of society uh, to play leading roles in, in Cuba. So it's a very um, engaged uh, view of the political changes, one which incorporates all aspects of Cuban life and Cuban society in its representation. And I think Diaz-Canel epitomizes that 
uh, in many ways, and I think is therefore very well placed to deal with the challenges that Cuba faces at the moment. And of course, the leadership team around him. There's a new role of a new uh, of the prime minister, which has been introduced, um, and the democratizations that I've uh, extensions of democracy uh, that I've mentioned, which are bringing in wider groups of people into the role of leading uh, the parliament. Yeah, and it's um, it speaks well to the uh, the the way the revolution continues in Cuba that the uh, they're constantly looking for ways to expand um, the the those who are, have uh, access to key roles in government, and it would be unthinkable for um, it would be unthinkable for someone of uh, very uh, poorer working class origin these days to make it to the senior levels of government in in the UK, either in the government or the civil service. So it's much more. Um, Obviously, it's a much more egalitarian system than the, um, the, 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 the Western capitalist countries that often level uh, disingenuous critiques at Cuba. Um, but to, to move towards the close of our uh, discussion now, Bernard, I wondered if you could, we could just end by talking about um, the Cuba Solidarity Campaign and how can listeners who maybe have heard our discussion today and want to support your work and to support the work of building um, solidarity with Cuba and their revolution, how can they find out more and what's the best way for them to back the, the campaign's work? Well, the easiest way is for people to go onto the Cuba Solidarity Campaign website and there you'll be able to join the campaign. We have regular Cuba updates which keep people informed of what's happening and developments that are taking place. And as a member, you get a magazine which comes out uh, once a quarter uh, which again kind of tells people about uh, developments that are taking place in Cuba, political changes that are happening in the world, uh, policies adopted by Donald Trump, for example, and what's going on there. Uh, and, and that's a way of keeping informed in that. In addition to that, we'd very much uh, welcome and encourage people to, if they're members of trade unions or uh, political organisations, to persuade them to affiliate to the Cuba Solidarity Campaign, uh, thereby you know, again, expanding uh, knowledge about Cuba. And of course, we want people to respond to um, biased and reactionary and untrue portrayals of Cuba that they find in the media. So, you know, we have ways of giving people information and arguments that can help them to do that. Uh, the campaign also uh, runs um, when, when we're able to, obviously at the present point in time with the pandemic, it's not possible. But we send delegations to Cuba so that people can can visit and learn firsthand for themselves. So I've been participating in an annual um, delegation from the National Education Union, which has sent uh, 20 teachers across to Cuba. And we visited schools, primary schools, secondary schools, special schools, universities to learn about the Cuban education system. And uh, we've had other groups of young workers going across participating in brigades, um, visiting um, uh, farms and all of that kind of thing. And uh, many other delegations that people have been on uh, following the course of the Cuban Revolution and the path from the east of the island through to the west. So there are all kinds of things like that. And in addition to that, we've uh, carried out some initiatives. So, for example, we've um, recently been collecting funds to help Cuba with buying provisions to fight the pandemic and we've collected 
£20,000 and that fund is still open. If people would like to contribute to that, it would be very, very positive. Uh, in addition to that, things like contacting your local member of parliament and asking them to sign early day motions uh, expressing opposition to the to the blockade uh, and um, you know carrying out um, supportive work in relation and activity in relation to the so I would very 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 much encourage people to become involved in a campaign that not only in terms of arguing the case for Cuba but in terms of practical activity in giving solidarity Cuba to Cuba is a in my view a very important organization Okay, and I'll put the links to uh, those different things you've talked about there, Bird, in the description, so people can click right through. Um, well, that that's been uh, a very illuminating discussion on the uh, the history and the current state of the revolution in Cuba, Bernard. Uh, thank you for coming on the show today. Um, I'm sure the audience will get a lot out of it, and um, I hopefully uh, be able to speak to you again further on down the line when we're all out of lockdown and uh, uh, we can go outside our bubbles again. But for today, uh, Bernard Regan, Secretary of the Cuba Solidarity Campaign in Britain, thank you very much for your time. Aquí pensaban seguir ganando el ciento por ciento con casas de apartamentos y echar al pueblo a sufrir y seguir de modo cruel contra el pueblo conspirando para seguirlo explotando y en eso llegó Fidel y se acabó la diversión llegó el comandante y mandó a parar y se acabó la diversión llegó el comandante y mandó a parar Aquí pensaban seguir, tragando y tragando tierra, sin sospechar que en la sierra se alumbraba el porvenir. Y seguir de modo cruel, la costumbre del delito, hacer de Cuba un garito, y en eso llegó Fidel. Y se acabó la diversión, llegó el comandante y mandó a parar. Se acabó la diversión, llegó el comandante y mandó a parar. Aquí pensaban seguir, diciendo que los cuatreros, por aquí dos bandoneros, asolaban al país y seguir de modo cruel. Con la infamia por escudo, difamando a los barbudos, y en eso llegó Fidel. Y se acabó la diversión, llegó el comandante y mandó a parar. Y se acabó la diversión, llegó el comandante y mandó a parar. Y pensaban seguir jugando a la democracia y 
el pueblo que en su desgracia se acabará de morir y seguir de modo cruel sin cuidarse ni la forma con el robo como norma y en eso llegó Fidel y se acabó la diversión llegó el comandante y mandó a parar y se acabó la diversión llegó el comandante y mandó a parar 